login. Enter your password. Password incorrect. Forgot your password. Please answer the security questions. What was your mother's maiden name? What was the name of your first pet? In what city were you born? How do you gain access to God? Too many failed login attempts. Your account has been blocked. Contact your system administrator. Connection lost. Mountain. Good morning. I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And welcome to everybody at all three campuses, Bel Air, Edgewood, here at Mountain Road. It's good to be together. If you're a guest, we are especially glad you're here. And um, I want to start with a question. Do you guys think we can just be done with winter now, please? Yeah. I mean, we're springing forward, right? I'm just re- I'm ready for spring. Uh, you know, I got a kick out of this uh, headline from a police, the police department in Harlan, Kentucky, a couple weeks ago announced on their Facebook page they had issued a warrant for the arrest of Elsa from Frozen. <laughs> said suspect is a blonde female last seen wearing a long blue dress and is known to burst into the song Let It Go. As you can see by the weather, she is very dangerous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. And then a few days ago, I saw a tweet from comedian Jim Gaffigan. He said, when is God going to run out of snow? And I was like, for real? Uh, and I thought, you know, that's sort of my bridge here from talking about the weather to talking about prayer. Okay, because that's what we do. When something is troubling to us, we, we look up. I, I really believe that every human being, no matter what they say they believe or don't believe about God or faith or religion, everybody prays. Everybody prays. We're wired to do it. No matter who we are, there's something about us when we feel joy or sorrow, we have questions, we look up. There's this vertical aspect to our lives, uh, this dimension, this spiritual part of us that seeks, it looks up for answers and seeks connection. And that's what we're talking about in this series called Passwords. We are, you know, we all have passwords. They're a big part of our lives. We have to keep up with them all. We have to change them every so often. Nowadays, you have to make strong passwords, right? So I was typing one in, and it's like, that's weak. And I'm like, you're weak. I don't need to be (laughs) insulted by you, website. So, I mean, it's a struggle. The struggle is real with all these passwords, right? Like to borrow from our last series, the struggle is real in our prayer lives, too. And it's a good metaphor, actually. You know, what we do, uh, what passwords actually do is they give us access, right? They help us to connect. And that is what prayer is. Prayer is access to God. It's connecting with God. I really like this definition of prayer that says prayer, it's simply just all the ways that we communicate and commune with God. And I think all of us could probably admit that we have had difficulty or are struggling currently or maybe have just sort of resigned ourselves to the fact that we always will struggle in prayer to you know to communicate with God to listen and really hear from God to know what to say to God that seems really hard to us sometimes and communing with God staying in an ongoing connection with God throughout all different kinds of life circumstances I mean Maybe for some kind of, you know, religious person who can go live on a mountain. But like for me in my real life, that sounds, that sounds really tough. So many of us, we've just sort of resigned ourselves to the thought that prayer is just always going to be difficult. It's always going to be unfruitful. 
We've been taught to doubt it. We've been taught to dread it. We've never really been taught to do it. Sometimes maybe we dabble in prayer, right? Other times maybe we hear a sermon and we, get, we work up our courage and we actually dare to try it again. But then what happens is it just ends up feeling like another password fail. We've tried the uppercase and lowercase. We went to the to the security questions, but we, it seems we've exceeded the number of allowed attempts and we just are locked out again. Has anyone ever felt like that in their prayer life? Is it just me? I have. You know, we, I know we have felt that way, and, and if you have, I want to say a couple of good, uh, good news to you here at the beginning. It's, one, it's okay. It's okay if you've struggled in prayer. That's actually a very common experience, and you're not alone, you're not crazy. I also want to say you're in the right place. Uh, church is not some kind of place where all the people who've got it all figured out come together and talk about how easy it all is. This is exactly the place we need to come with our struggles and our issues and our questions and our doubts, and we wrestle those to the ground together with God and we move forward. This is a safe place for you. I also want you to know that prayer was never supposed to be about guilt. We, it, that really is the first thing that comes to our minds. We get this bad feeling a lot of times right away when we start talking about prayer. We we, you know, we're like, oh yeah, prayer, I'm, I'm so bad at that. You know, I just, I'm awful at that. I really owe prayer. Yeah, I gotta, I really ought to do that more. I gotta get better at that. I'm glad we're talking about it maybe. But that's not what it was ever supposed to be about, to be this performance thing that elicits these bad feelings where we beat ourselves up. The truth is that God greatly desires to be, and actually God is accessible to us. The, the thing we just got to do is learn to get out of our own way enough to allow him to teach us how to truly connect with him. So here we all are from all walks of life. We're coming from all over the map on this thing, but we're here together and we're coming into this series with a heart that's like the disciples first came to Jesus in Luke chapter 11 and they just said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. If there's a password to gain access to you, God, we want it. Give it to us. We don't want to just learn about prayer. We want to learn how to pray. We want to be practitioners of prayer. We, that's what we're going to do today, actually. We're not just going to talk about it. We're going to do it. We're going to pray together. And so I just want to begin by asking God, asking you, God, on behalf of all of us, Lord, teach us to pray. We are ready. We are ready to learn. I hope many of you have already started that process through some of the resources we provided. We've got a great list. Uh, seek it out, and we will give it to you of some great books and music and uh, online tools that can help you uh, in prayer. We've asked all of our groups, whether now or sometime in the near future, to take some time and align themselves and do a study on prayer. And so I hope you'll join a group, stop at the Connecting Corner at whatever campus, and, uh, or we'll help you start a new group. We, it's really important. Another thing we've provided is these little bookmarks. I hope you'll grab one or more of these today. It just has a, a daily scripture that takes us all the way to Easter, has the Lord's Prayer here, and it has this acrostic with the word Father that can be a really helpful tool that many of us are using. So I hope you'll grab that and use it and join in as we seek to learn to pray. This is really, really important stuff. And the main reason really is, is me. It's really all about me. Because that's the way I think, right? I am, I am you know, may not know this about me, but I'm actually a profoundly self-centered and selfish person. I can make, I can take any situation, it seems, and make it all about me and my feelings and my preferences. It seems to be just my default setting sometimes. It's just 
what I do, and I, it, I continually amaze myself how I can do that. And I'm not pointing any fingers, but I guess many of you could probably relate to that because really that's our common struggle. That is really the essence of our spiritual and human struggle is this battle for the throne of my life, this battle between these two kingdoms, right? There's this, this pride. And C.S. Lewis says that pride is the, the sin, it's sort of at the root of all the other sins. You can take all the other ones, even the big ones, sloth and gluttony and wrath and greed and lust and envy and all, you name it. You start peeling back the layers and underneath you will find pride, which is just basically this battle between the me-centric world and the God-centric world. Who is in charge? Whose kingdom matters most? Uh, it makes me think of Legos, okay? You guys like Legos? Anybody? I love Legos, okay? I got to go to, back to Georgia. We were, took a little family vacation a couple weeks ago and uh, met my new little nephew, and I was hanging out with my brother, and we got to go dig through a bunch of old uh, tubs of, like, old childhood stuff, right? And so we were finding what to throw out and what to keep and just going down memory lane. It was great. My, here's a picture of my brother. He's holding up one of his school projects he found. It's, I don't know if you can read it. It says, I am special. And I think this was like his senior, like college thesis project. <laughs> but um, while we were doing this, I found my old Legos. I made this awesome discovery, this, this tub, like all my old childhood Legos. And so I was so excited to bring them back up here. My daughters are getting into Legos. I couldn't wait to add them to their pile, you know. And when I was a kid, I just loved building with Legos. And I confess, I still do. I still do. There was a Saturday... A few weeks ago, when all four of us in my family, we were building with Legos like all day. It was actually my daughters who got tired of it first. They're like, Mom, Dad, we're, you know, we're hungry. And we, I was like, all right, hang on, give me two more minutes. I've got to finish my robot, you know. And eventually, this is a little confession here. I'm not proud of it. Eventually, we did feed them, okay? We stopped building. But um, I've always loved building with Legos. When I was a kid, I had some of these castles, okay? And uh, I would build my kingdom, I was always adding different pieces and manipulating the different characters and planning and staging and winning battles against different enemies. I was protecting my borders. I was in charge. I wrote the script and I was the hero. You know, sometimes I would decide I needed more pieces to, to realize my grand vision, right? Maybe something got lost or broken, probably my brother's fault, okay? Um, maybe I just decided that I needed more. My kingdom needed to grow and expand. So what I would do is I asked my parents for some more, for my birthday or whatever. I would work to earn some more money to buy some more Lego pieces. A lot of this is good. I, I am encouraging my girls to build and create and dream with Legos. That's great. But here's something I've noticed. These childhood behaviors, where it's all about my kingdom, it becomes a very negative thing as we become teens and adults, right? As it starts to play out in my real life. I get consumed with my own kingdom, but now it's getting real. I have actual real-life responsibilities. I have actual real non-plastic people over whom I have influence. And I look up sometimes and I just realize how much of my time and energy is spent arranging and planning and manipulating everything and everybody around me in an effort to build up my kingdom, my purposes, my agenda, my plan. In moments of clarity, I sometimes stop and notice just how much of myself gets poured into ensuring that my will be done, that my plans and dreams and desires will come to fruition. You, maybe you know what I'm talking about. 
Anybody here ever want to dictate how everything fits into your life? Like when it comes to your job, you know, where you live, your lifestyle, who you marry and when you marry them, your freedoms, your education, your leisure and fun, your experiences, things that you deem important. I sometimes get frustrated when I don't have all the pieces that I think I need to set everything up just as I desire. When my kingdom and my life and my influence and my popularity and my success doesn't grow just like I think it's supposed to be growing or like I see someone else's growing. It bugs me. And now it all seems so much more important because it's real. And it, it actually is, which is why it's extra painful when I begin to realize I'm still basically acting like a little kid with his toys. My prayers sometimes sound an awful lot like, Dad, I need some more of these red pieces. Okay, I need these. Now buy me them. Okay, give them to me now. Or my prayers sound like, Mom, Mom, he broke my horse. He broke it. You need to punish him to take care of that for me. He needs to be punished for that. Or Daddy, Daddy, I just have to have that new tower set to go with my castle. My castle just, it's not complete until I get it. And I just look at me. I've been such a good little boy. Don't you, you know, don't you want to get it for me? And we, in, in our prayer life, we act like this. We, we act like if we can have the, the right magic words or make our argument strong enough or just be a good enough little kid to earn it, then our Heavenly Father is just going to give us the pieces that we think we need so we can keep building our little kingdoms just how we've planned. Anybody with me on that? Anybody ever pray like that? I know that we come into the topic of prayer frustrated. Some of us are frustrated because we play this comparison game. I remember when I was a kid, I had a lot of Legos. I, I had some good, good ones to work with, and I would go to my, friend's, my friend Matthew's house, and he had a whole room in this basement, okay, dedicated to his Legos. He had a monorail that went around the room. And I would, I would come home from his house, and I'd be like dissatisfied and disappointed with my same Legos that I enjoyed the day before. Some of us are like that in our prayer life. We're so consumed with comparing my little kingdom to this person's little kingdom, or their, what I have to what they have, that we, we stay frustrated and disappointed and dissatisfied with God. Some of you, a lot of our friends who are not here today, are mad at God. You know, you, maybe you grew up with a scarcity mentality. You never got any Legos, right? Or maybe, maybe you prayed for the marriage to be saved and it still ended. Maybe you prayed for healing and they still died. Maybe you prayed for more faith and you still struggle to believe. And that's real. That's painful stuff. Others of you, you've pretty much always gotten all the Legos that you wanted. You got every set you ever asked for and more. You, you've built these amazing kingdoms, but one day you sort of looked at it and said, is this it? There's got to be more to the good life, right? You got every toy that you ever wanted. You got every available kind of Lego piece that exists, and yet none of them quite fits in the God-shaped hole in your heart. And you look around and say, there's got to be more. Others come asking a very legitimate question. You know, why bother? If God knows everything anyway, why does he need to hear it from me? What's the point? Prayer takes time and energy. Shouldn't I use that to be doing things for God? Shouldn't I use that to be feeding somebody or building them a house or tutoring a kid or whatever? I want to say whatever issues you bring into the topic of prayer today... You're, you're in the right place, and we do the right thing by turning to Jesus. He is the one with the answers 
to all of our questions and concerns. He is the ultimate authority on prayer. He is the center. He's the Lord. He's our leader and our role model. And he was the ultimate practitioner of prayer. He was a great prayer. He prayed a lot. Read the Gospels sometime. He's always doing it, and he does it effectively. And so we, we turn to him. And Scripture records several of Jesus' prayers. I hope you will study them all at some point. But for this series, we're focusing right in on the big one, the main one that we know, the Lord's Prayer, right? The Our Father, the model prayer, which was Jesus' response to that request by his disciples to teach them to pray. We find it in two places, in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 6, which is the longer version that we're most familiar with. And last week we began by looking in on the first part of it, which just says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. And this week we zoom right in on the next line, which says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is how Jesus begins to teach us to pray. And for many of us, that first time when we, come, when we hear that, it's not at all what we expected. We come to Jesus looking for a few pointers, you know, some coaching on how to get God to give me all these things that I say I want and need. But Jesus says, no, 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 it, it's totally reorienting. He turns it upside down. He's not, we don't find Jesus waiting to take, kind of take our order and run back and get the pieces that we request. Instead, he wants to reframe our entire perspective. And whenever I get to this scripture, it is just, it's a really humbling experience for me. It knocks me right off the throne of my life and reminds me anew. Oh, right. Yes. Not about me. Right. I forgot. Again, it's about you. It's about you. This is about your kingdom, God, your will, your holy name, your purposes, your agenda, your timing, your reputation, your values, your priorities. This prayer thing, it's about who you are. It's about what you are doing, what you want. And Jesus says, if we can get that understanding, you know, through my thick skull and into my heart, then we're beginning now to understand what prayer is primarily about. So reflecting on this made me think of that famous story of John Wooden, coach, great coach of uh, UCLA basketball for all those years. He won like 10 national championships, maybe the greatest program in any sport ever. So he would get the best of the best of the best, these amazing athletes have dominated at every level. They stride in there, ready to prove themselves on the first day of practice every year. The first thing he would do, sit them down and teach them all how to put on their socks and shoes properly. You know, so imagine the scene. These guys, they come in and they're like, what? Any little kid can do this. What are we doing? But he, he was dead serious and he taught it in the greatest detail. And, he, and here's, here's what it was about. He said, you get a little crease in one of your socks and it we're going to go hard, so it's going to become a blister. And you get a blister over here, and you're going to compensate, and you're going to hurt a knee or ankle or something over here, right? And that's going to take you out for a while, and that's going to hurt the team, and that's going to set us back in these goals that we have together. So this is really important. This thing that he did, it, it was brilliant. It taught him humility. It established right away who was in charge. It kind of leveled the playing field. Everybody puts on their socks and shoes. And it said volumes about first things first. First things first. And I think that is what Jesus is doing when the disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray. He said, all right, first, it's about God's holy name. It's about God's holiness. And right along with that, it's about his plan 
His kingdom, His rule, His reign, His will over all others. God is in charge. This is His program. He's the one running this team. And so we need to trust Him. Get on board. First things first, says Jesus. Before anything else, prayer is about getting fully on board with God and his kingdom. And this wasn't just Jesus' prayers. This was his whole life. Everything about him, it's all over the story. Here's just a few highlights. Before he was born, an angel came to Mary, said she was going to give birth to the Son of God. He will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. It's king and kingdom language always used to describe Jesus' identity and his mission. And you got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Mark, uh, the first words he records of Jesus in his first chapter, Jesus says this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He's saying, it's happening now with me, in me, through me. The kingdom of God, God's reign, his agenda is now impressing itself on this world. So Jesus says, repent. Adjust your course. Get in line with this. Get on board. Believe the good news. And over and over, Jesus, this he beats the same drum, right? Matthew summed up Jesus' entire ministry this way. He said, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, more than anything else. And you notice he didn't just talk about it. He was actually building it as he went. He was erecting billboards, pointing to it everywhere he went. It says every sickness and disease that was healed was a, was a giant flashing arrow pointing at God on the throne, at the kingdom of God. When God gets what God wants, broken things and broken people are made whole. When God rules as king, wrongs are set right, and all the damages we've done, they get undone. Jesus, when, as he infiltrates our world, sinners are called to repentance, back to the right kind of relationship with God. Demons are overpowered, addictions are defeated, the grip of evil on people or on places or, or groups or societies, it's released because now God's reign has been established in that place. The dead are raised, the blind can see, the lonely and outcasts are welcomed, the hungry are filled, the lost are found. Life is experienced in all its fullness the way that the Creator intended it to be. All this is what happens as God's kingdom begins to come near. The kingdom vision goes way back actually before Jesus. In the Old Testament prophets, uh, here's what God says through Isaiah at one point. Pay close attention now. I'm creating new heavens and a new earth. All the earlier troubles, chaos, and pain are things of the past to be forgotten. Look ahead with joy. Anticipate that I'm, what I'm creating. No more sounds of weeping in the city. No cries of anguish. No more babies dying in the cradle or old people who don't enjoy a full lifetime. And then at the end of the story in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it's the same vision that's recast. John gets a glimpse of the coming kingdom and he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is ultimately what God wants, to be with us with no barriers, no sense of being locked out like we, like we lost the password. Ultimately, that's where this is all headed. What the prophets foretold, what Jesus made clear, what Revelation anticipates and longs for is that God is bringing everything under his reign. He will be honored as king, and he's not going to be some kind of far-off emperor. He's going to be with us, and we'll be with him, and he belongs to us, and we belong to him. Jesus came, and his church exists to ignite a passion for this vision, for that kingdom to become a reality. You and I live in what theologians would call an in-between time, the, the already but not yet reality of our world. What that means is that God's kingdom, this is a real thing. It really exists. It's already been inaugurated and accomplished. The war is over, right? What, what we celebrate on Easter, the cross and the empty tomb, it means God's kingdom is real and there, there is a place even here and now, not just after we die, where God gets what he wants. And yet it's also quite clear that there's this other sort of concurrent reality where God does not get what he wants. He has allowed this. There is still death and crying and pain and rebellion and fear and hunger and racism and terror and unfaithfulness. And there's all kinds of other things that are at odds with what God wants and it leaves us broken. So the war is over, but there's some battles still raging. And this is at this intersection, that's where we live. That's where we do life and make our choices. So when we come to Jesus to ask, how do, how do we pray? He says, first things first, you pray for the kingdom to come. You pray for it to be born in you and all around you. And you pray for it to grow and to happen everywhere. This is what he's saying. As we begin to clearly see in the life of Jesus, this your kingdom come stuff, is, it's also way more than something we say or even something we do occasionally. It becomes a posture. It becomes kind of how we roll, you know. It's, it's a way of life. It is who we are. It is, what it is is a worldview. It's a way of seeing everything. I got to thinking about this with passwords. You know, the latest, greatest technology doesn't actually even require passwords. You know, the iPhone 6 has the little uh, thumbprint, fingerprint reader. Uh, our children's ministry check-in here has the fingerprint readers. Here's a Useless fact for you, one day when I signed up for that, I was bored, I registered all ten of my fingers. So I can sign my girls in with any finger I want. Um, but you know, nowadays there's something even cooler actually than the fingerprint stuff. It, you know what I'm talking about, you've seen it in the movies, it's the retinal scanner, right? Yeah? So this is actually real. Uh, it, it's, it, what it does is it reads an image of the blood vessel pattern in your eye, which is very unique. And it uses that to authenticate your identity. It's just super cool. In fact, you know what? Children's ministry, I'm calling you guys out. Like, getting my finger all the way up there to the table. Man, nobody got time for that, right? I got my hands full anyway. I got to wear gloves eight months out of the year around here. I need that thing to read my eyeball. I need that. Y'all got to get on that. But seriously, I got to thinking that's not a bad metaphor, for what Jesus says about prayer. 
We come to him and we say, teach us to pray, Lord. Get, what we mean is give us the password so we can get God to give us what we think we want and need. And Jesus, he just gently says, no, 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 no. It's not about that. There's, there's no password. He says, you know, instead, show me your eyes. Show me your eyes. It's actually about how you see the world. You and I, how do we see the world? When, we, when we're going about our business in the world, are we seeing potential conquests and acquisitions for our little kingdoms? Or, as we see the world through Jesus-shaped lenses, are we beginning to see potential for his kingdom to grow? His beautiful and eternal kingdom. As I go deeper and deeper in the life of prayer, my eyes become his eyes. The little stream of my, my will aligns with the mighty river of his will and I begin to see the kingdom in surprising places. And I begin to see kingdom potential everywhere. You know, on, the, on the bookmark here, the A stands for align. And we've been taught to think of prayer kind of like a suggestion box. You know, you're at a restaurant, you write your comment, you drop it in there, but you really don't believe that it's ever going to be read, or if it's read, that it's really going to be considered, or that if, if, if it's much less going to be actually responded to and reacted to. We've been taught to think about prayer like a message in a bottle, right? You throw it out in the ocean, and you don't really have any real hope that anyone's ever going to find it, much less read it, much less come to your rescue. But let me give you a better image for what prayer is like with Jesus. He said, it's more like an awesome leader. Think of a boss at work or a teacher or a professor or a coach or a commanding officer who just has so much integrity. You just respect and trust this person so much. They have cast such an amazing vision for where you're headed. It's just so compelling. You just love them and trust them and respect them so much. You walk into their office and you look them in the eye and you say, I want you to know I'm in. I'm on board with what you're doing around here. I believe in you. I support your agenda. I got your back. Where you lead, I will follow. And I just want you to give me a role and know that I'm going to do my best to serve faithfully in that role. I love being on this team. I'm in. That, as we pray for the coming of the kingdom, is much more like what Jesus is talking about. He is our king. He is our good and, and holy and loving teacher, boss, commander, coach, Lord, Jesus. And when you and I can begin to say that to him, we're starting to understand his kind of prayer. And, and so many great things happen. The first thing that begins to happen is that I get less and less worried and consumed with my little kingdom. Aaron and I, a few years ago, we got to go to Legoland, okay, the theme park. And it's this... It's acres and acres and acres of amazing stuff. These same little bricks with just vastly greater vision and infinitely more resources. You got towns and cities and rivers and airplanes and airports and Mount Rushmore and it's amazing. And I, I felt like if I'd have been walking around carrying one of my little Lego creations, I would have been like ashamed. It would have looked pitiful, right? And we have this God who's like, he's like the owner of Legoland, okay? He's like the chief 
designer, and he comes up to us, and, and we're not made to feel ashamed. He just says, oh, you know, you've done, you've done your best there. Hand it over to me and watch what I can do. And he finds a place for it in his world and does some major renovations. Or maybe he says, you know what, we've got to totally pretty much dismantle this thing, but we're going to put it back together in a, in a way that you're going to like. It's going to be beautiful. And, and if that happens, you're just like, okay, I'm in. I hand it over to you, and, you know, how can I help? This is, as this happens in our lives, something else cool starts to happen. We begin to realize, once again, remember, not all about me. And so we actually begin to love our neighbors as ourselves. I begin to desire to pray for other people. I begin to notice some of their needs and their pain and what's missing and broken in their lives. I begin to want to actually intercede for them in prayer, to stand in the gap, to say, God, help them, heal them. Show yourself to them as you have done to me. I don't know exactly how this works, but we are so convinced that God listens and responds and somehow prayer is really important and it's worth the time and energy. Every week we invite you to write prayer requests on that welcome card and we pray for them because we believe in it. Because Jesus says it matters, that there's power in it, and I think you and I all know in our gut that it matters and that there's power in it. You know, it's actually really, really difficult to find somebody, even the most hard-headed, atheistic person you can know. There's hardly anybody out there who will turn you down if you say, can I pray for you? Or can I pray with you even? So in faith, we do that. We pray for people. Then another thing starts to happen as we do that. You know, as our kingdom eyes see more and more, we not only pray for individuals we know personally, but we begin to dare to pray for bigger things. And, and some of these things that have seemed so hopeless, these larger themes, we dare to address them in our prayers, like, like our town, our country, our world, like gangs, drugs, war, slavery, you name it. Our hopelessness begins to be pushed back by God's goodness and we realize that he's even bigger than those things and that and we become more and more convinced that this kingdom that we hear about in revelation it really is coming into being we're really moving toward that vision even on the darkest days of our world and the world will be put to rights there will be no more tears death loses love wins and then as if all that weren't enough we look around as we begin to pray the kingdom and, and we realize it's just becoming a part of us. It's like breathing. And we realize that we're actually helping to build it. Our hands and feet are busy and the work of the kingdom. And as we, you know, we, we begin to love people as he loves them and stand in the gap and protect and seek justice to create beauty out of ugliness, to be God's representatives and ambassadors in real situations, as we get on our knees in private and in here together, he begins to then call us up off our knees out there. Our travels, they all become mission trips, whether you're going to Kenya or Costco. Our our, uh, daily lives, you're driving by that nursing home for the thousandth time, and instead of just voicing a prayer and driving on by, you find yourself turning into the driveway and parking and going out and having tea with somebody and playing Uno with a lonely person. You know, we, we decide maybe to have that conversation. We finally have the courage to have the conversation where we need to forgive or seek forgiveness. You sponsor a child. It plays out in a thousand different ways. We can't do it all, but we can do something. And we notice 
as a result of our prayers for the kingdom, we begin to become the very answers to some of those prayers. We discover that it's actually not about skipping prayer time to be able to do more, but rather if we're going to actually know what to do and persevere over the long haul in doing God's kind of things, we have to be rooted and anchored in the life of prayer where we're deeply connected with Him. And so I hope you're catching a glimpse today. I hope you catch a glimpse every time we get together of that great kingdom. Doesn't it sound like the right kind of life? Doesn't that sound like what we're created for? I'm telling you, these kinds of things, they can happen. They are happening all around us and among us. They will continue to happen as we are able to be the kind of people who just say, Jesus, keep teaching us how to pray. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying this way is our only hope. It's our only hope at reordering our lives around his will. It is our only hope at loosening our grip on our own little plastic perishable kingdoms. And it is our only hope at instead allowing our lives to be woven into God's story and enfolded into his vast and beautiful and eternal kingdom. May Jesus lead you and lead me and lead us according to the way that he has taught us. Let's pray. Our Father who fills the heavens, whose presence is even here now, we pray that your name would be made great and made holy through our lives. God, we ask for your kingdom to come in us and through us and all around us and we ask that your will be done allow our wills and our agendas to fall away as we align ourselves with you in every part of our lives that's our prayer today Lord in the name of the King Jesus Amen